Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, what's up, what's up, team? Another big thank you to Jeffrey Gordon of Ideal Video Strategies, who did the heavy lifting editing this episode. You can learn more about his work at IdealVideoStrategies.com. And hey, did you know there's an ADHD Essentials Facebook community? Because there is, and we'd love to have you join. Go to Facebook.com slash groups slash ADHD Essentials community to sign up. And of course, the best way to support this show is by sharing it with others, either online or in person. So use your social media skills, use your in-person social skills, and let folks know about it. If you find quality and meaning in the work I do with this podcast, I would greatly appreciate your help. A five-star rating and review on iTunes is a wonderful way to help me get the word out. The more listeners we have, the more people we help. Welcome to ADHD Essentials. Today, we're talking to Doug Harris of ADHD Synergy. Doug is a longtime ADHD coach, working primarily with creatives and the gifted. He also organizes the Ann Arbor, Michigan ADHD Support Group. He was an absolute blast to talk to. In today's episode, Doug tells us about finding connection in ADHD conferences and ADHD groups. He shares how he used the streak strategy to meditate for 388 days in a row, shares his theory of pre-trying, and talks about growing up with ADHD. All right, let's get rolling. I'm an ADHD coach. I've been coaching for a number of years now. My practice is ADHD Synergy, and that's where you can find me on the internets. I focus primarily on people who have ADHD, people of high IQs, and people who are creative, and better yet, if there are two or three out of those. But there's a lot of overlap, a lot of similarity, a lot of the same approaches. So what, I guess, what got you into ADHD coaching? I was diagnosed just over 20 years ago, and I started, uh, I was fortunate, Siri Solden is in the area, and I started by seeing her, which I think was very, very fortunate. She's great. She convinced me to go to uh, at a conference in Chicago, which was life-changing for me. That was uh, 1999. But I got away from it. I drifted away. From, I was a backslider with the ADHD. I was really involved, and I just, for a while, you know, bunch of things came up and I just put out, I forgot about it. And then the conference, one year I looked and, oh, it's coming to Detroit, which is 45 minutes from where I live. So I went there and the, and the very first thing I went to as a program was David Gwork and Alan Brown about coaching. It was actually a pre-session and it just fascinated me. It, I didn't even know this thing was out there. And I looked into a little more and then within a few weeks, I had signed up. About when was that? It was, see, I always try to find my running injuries. That was the broken foot. So that would be 2013. That's awesome that you use running injuries to figure out what years are. I'm with you. Years are hard. Dates are weird. So what was it like going to the conferences? Because we have the AD, all of those 
smaller conferences sort of combined to form Voltron. And now we have a single ADHD conference that happens. And this year it's in Philadelphia um, coming up in November. So what were your experiences at that con at those conferences? Because maybe some of the listeners can get an impression and make a decision about whether they want to go in November. The sessions were great. A lot of really the some of the best speakers, experts in ADHD. But I think what really struck me the most was just that feeling of being with your tribe, of being in a room and realizing like, oh, everyone gets me. I don't have to qualify things. I don't have to shut down half of what I want to say so I don't sound like a babbling idiot. Like they'll get it. And, it, and everyone is having that same feeling. There's this everyone like dropping their, their shields, their guard, dropping their gardens, just being themselves. We get that locally. We have a local support group in Ann Arbor. And we'll, we get like 18 people probably most months. And when new people come, they get awfully emotional sometimes because they've never in their life's experience this feeling at home like that. It's powerful. I remember last year's conference, I was talking to Jessica McCabe and there were there were a handful of us all talking and Jessica apologized for wandering off on some tangent or something. And I was just like, Jessica, like, you know, you're among your people, right? Like you can, we can drift and wander wherever we want and we can come back and it'll, it's fine. And she was like, yeah, good point. Cause that is one of the best parts about those conferences. And it's something everyone mentions that I almost take for granted when I'm there. I remember someone was telling me a story. They went into a session and they apologized for being late and everyone just started laughing. Like, <laughs> it's, it's no, there's no apologizing in ADHD, at least at the conference. Apologize enough the rest of the time. When I run my workshops, I don't even start them until five minutes past whatever time they're supposed to start. We have that with our group uh, as a kind of a joke that we run from 10 to 12 on a Saturday, every third Saturday of the month. And at 10 o'clock, I count how many people are there. And I estimate there'll be three times that many when we finally get everyone there. And it works out pretty accurately. Somebody once came an hour and 45 minutes late to her, but she said that, you know, I figured it's better to get 15 minutes than none at all. And she knew that it wouldn't be shameful to walk in. That's great. Yeah. So I think, wow, that's a win. We're doing something right here. Really setting a nice tone. When it comes to a support group like that, right? Is, is this a Chad group? On paper, I think it is mostly it's because the Chad, we started out as a Chad chapter for uh, parents support. But then we also added a few years ago, six or seven years ago, added this adult component. And the children's was basically, the family was like anything where the, someone's leading scouts or coaching soccer, their kids grow up. And then suddenly that's just not a higher priority for them. So the children's thing, the family thing has been, hasn't been active for a few years. But we, I, we, I guess we technically are a Chad thing. But So if people are looking for those parent support groups or just adult support groups, how might they go about finding them? Meetup. I think most of the people who have them, they use Meetup. A friend of mine, she started one up in New Orleans. I know Dwayne Gordon talks, they have one in Montreal. I don't know if they use Meetup, but I think that's, we, of course, we have like 1,200 people in our Meetup group, which means 18 show up or less, but our room is not big enough for 1,200 people. So <laughs> It's like it's a little more than 1% of the people who show up. That's awesome. <laughs> Let's play in the, in, the, in the support groups a little bit for a second. What, what's going on there? What do, you, what do you do? Is it just people talking about having ADHD? Is there a, more of a structure to it? What does that look like? We generally start out going around, just checking in, which often takes half the time because, because ADHD. And, but we, uh, we go around, people will 
throw out a subject they might be interested in. If it, there seems to be enough people interested in something or if it just comes up, we'll, we'll tab one or two topics. But of course, that's just, it goes far off, off topic frequently. It's, it's uh, I go for fun, honestly. It's, I always get a kick out of it. I always find it really energizing. It's, people are, it's, there'll be tears and laughter both in a session. It'll make you laugh, it'll make you cry, isn't it? Like, definition of something that's good and powerful. There are people have these revelations and it's very powerful, but then everyone there, it's ADHD, I think, the sense of humor that everyone, everyone with ADHD seems to be funny. <laughs> so we, we, so it's really a light, it's a light atmosphere, but even when we talk about heavy stuff, because there's things about relationships, struggles with work or lack of work, and it's talking about a lot of heavy stuff, but it, just, I guess it just shows us how much shame weighs down everything. Because you take that away and suddenly it's, it, the room lights up, lightens up. Okay. And is, is this a group that you're running or is it just a group you attend? It's, I'm one of the leaders, not leaders, facilitators. We just, cause we're not leading. It's everyone's leading. Mike Fidel is the mastermind behind it. And uh, Suzanne Ostrowski-Dan's also is a third person. So we... We take turns. If one of us is always there, at least, or two or three, better yet. It's hurting cats. You know, they say. And the one thing I think a lot of people get out of it is that they may have an issue where maybe they're a little impulsive or maybe they talk a little too much. But then they see someone else who's really impulsive and really talks too much. And that's kind of enlightening. Like, they think, oh, I don't want to be like, is that what I look like to other people? Like, I, it gives you an awareness except for the person who talks the most, they don't get that benefit. Are these groups more clinical? Are they more informal? What, what's that part? We had a, a weekly, monthly thing where people would bring in an expert, but we realized at some point you can get the stuff online. There's all kinds of podcasts, this one for instance, books, a lot of places to learn, but there, wasn't a lot of, there weren't a lot of options for people just to be with other people, to be seen. And, that, and it's, that's, that's another thing that comes through with the people with high IQs, people are creative, often don't feel seen. You have a choice. You can be authentic and then be, I don't know, say ostracized, but not fit in. Or you can fit in, but then you're not yourself. Anyone who's different spends so much time trying to hide who they are so that they can fit in. And uh, that, that, that's sad. I mean, it's just, it's frustrating. And I think a lot of that leads to a lot of, a lot of so many problems behind that, just like depression. It's depressing to not be able to be yourself, to just have a mask on all the time. I mean, that's a theme that comes up in, on, on this podcast a fair amount, is that the nature of we have a disability and life is harder for us. ADHD is life on hard mode. And to struggle and to try to perform at what is average for others and how for us that feels like perfect and how, how just how challenging that can be. And it, it's great that there are groups out there to, that kind of let you let your hair down, I guess, and, and be who you are. That's one of the, one of the powerful parts of the, the parent coaching groups that I do is we just, we just started two days ago for the parent coaching groups. And one of the things that I pointed that I point out in the first day is when everyone sort of shares why they're in the group, what are they hoping to get out of the group? What are the challenges they're facing? That's how we start. And everybody says kind of the same stuff. Like at least half of the people are saying about the same exact stuff. And the other half of the people are just not sharing yet. So we don't get the same level of detail. But I always 
take a minute and say, look, this is probably obvious, but I've learned over the course of my 42 years that often it's important to say the thing that is obvious because people don't even notice it even despite it being obvious. And the obvious thing is that everybody's here for pretty much the same reason, that they're in the groups because their kid is being oppositional or defiant or because their kid is anxious or isn't organized enough or because they feel like they're failing as a parent or because they're struggling with making themselves understood by their spouse or their kid or whatever. And that's the power of group. Both the parent groups that I'm doing right now and, and the adult group that you're talking about is this is what it's like for everybody. You're not alone. We're not alone in this. Absolutely. We also, as a subgroup of this, we formed a, four couples, did a couples thing about relationships. And we met, I think, monthly for a year or two. And I found that fascinating to see another couple discussing something. And I could totally relate to what they were talking about. And I could see the issue. Whereas if it had been me, I would have had too much baggage. I would have been too defensive. I wouldn't have seen this. And so realizing that for better or for worse, we're not that unique. We all have so much in common. And you see these, just seeing something modeled in another person where I'm not, I don't have any reactivity. I can just see it for what it is. It's very illuminating. Some, something you're not going to learn on your own. So I think groups of people, and then people bring different wording. That they'll say something a certain way that'll resonate. And that's, I think, little things like that just gather and it adds up to a lot. Yeah. I know that that's Eric Tivers who does uh, ADHD Rewired, which is, I mean, he got me into this podcasting thing. He really brought me into this niche in a way that I hadn't been previously. He only does groups now. He's completely sold and over the moon with the power of groups. And a lot of it is exactly what we're talking about. So his, his ADHD rewired adult coaching groups, his accountability groups, are they're powerful too. And a lot of it is, is a testament to his ability as, as an expert in ADHD and as an ADHD coach. And his willingness and enthusiasm for embracing the group model and how potent that can be for the Me Too stuff. And not the hashtag Me Too stuff, but the, the ADHD. I have that too and see myself in you part. I took that. I was in the second group. And I, I, I found the powerful part that he just draws people. So he's just creates, create, good at creating community. And I keep up with a number of the people from that group. I made friends that we were talking all the time regularly. I do get the benefit. There's a benefit of individual things. But then also the group is also just more affordable for people. So more people can be involved, which is, I think it's valuable too. As a coach, I like doing both. I get different things professionally out of the group than I do out of the individual coaching, but they both have meaning for me. And then there's that third tier of providing workshops and trainings and stuff. Um, but I learned from all of it and it's, it's all pretty powerful for me. Yeah. They're just, just different aspects of the same thing. Right. I'm interested in that group. In our group, we have so many engineers. Like somebody comes in there, it's like, like what do you do? Like, I'm an engineer. And like everyone chuckles because like, of course you are. Why wouldn't you be? <laughs> what we're getting though, I think this group selects so much because most of the people are doing okay. I think people who are really struggling just don't, don't come out, even though they could probably, they, I'm sure they could get a lot out of it. But that's something you see a lot. And um, people who have ADHD and I say a high IQ, they're, now it's considered twice exceptional. When I was a kid, there was no such name for that. It was just kids who didn't live up to their potential. That's what it was called. And that was my experience. I didn't get diagnosed until, say, 20 years ago, a whole lot of years before then. And that, to me, I think just growing up as a kid with ADHD, 
affected who I was so much. Think about being twice exceptional, you can have like a third grader who has the intellect of a sixth grader and then the emotional self-regulation of a kindergartner. And you know, that's a, that doesn't work very well. That's a problem. You're not going to fit in anywhere. And there's so, so much of that is just, there's a lot of loneliness in that. Yeah, absolutely there is. Whether it's that they're, they're gifted and they're, you have the intellect, like you said, they're in third grade, the intellect of a, of a sixth grader and the emotional maturity of a first or second grader and they're struggling that way. And we've got a couple of friends who have kids that are just gigantic. And so physically, they look like they're a sixth grader when they're actually in third grade. He looks like a sixth grader. He's in third grade, but he's got sort of the maturity of a second grader and the intelligence, the ability to execute on his intelligence at like a second grade level. And so it's this dichotomy of like the expectations are that you're a lot more old and a lot more mature than you actually are. But then it's even harder when you look like you're in third grade and you're, you talk to the kid and they're super smart and you're like, whoa, and then they pitch a fit and you're like, what the heck? And for adults too, because there's, I mean, there's days when I have the maturity of a kindergartner. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can relate to that. I, I, for me, I think a lot of living successfully with ADHD is being able to tease out the difference between being childlike and childish. And I realized that for me, when I'm at my best, I'm playing. And on one level, when I'm talking to other people with ADHD, they get it. They understand it. My wife doesn't always understand it. It comes across as childish. I, I, the things I'm interested in, like my favorite thing I'm doing now is improv. And I like it because we just, a bunch of grownups get together and we play. We just make stuff up. And it's just such a great venue for me. I just, I'm in that place where I feel safe. I, one thing I love about improv is it's, it's mindfulness. I medita- I've meditated nonstop now for 388, not nonstop, every day for 388 days. I just looked at my app this morning. Wow. And um, but mindfulness is such a big part of, of improv. You're in the moment. But in real life, it often comes across as seeming irresponsible. I just think there's, there's a level of how responsible I can seem to be. And it's, and it's, it's going to be disappointing to people I'm around. And I try to be okay with that. But it's hard. I, I mean, I know that like intentions. I have good intentions. And I follow through most of the time. But there's some things. Like I've, I've thought like I'm like half a genius. I'm half genius, like half idiot. Because I have, have, I can come up with, it's like a CEO, a wonderful CEO, but then the rest of it, the people that work in the company are just horrible at their jobs. The people who are in charge of all the maintenance and typing and all that, those, uh, those parts aren't so good. The executive function parts, I guess. Yeah, the execution side of stuff. Yeah, and I think that really, I've come up across that recently, the idea with people with creativity. We were talking with uh, Jonathan Hassel a couple of weeks ago, and we were together on a call. The idea with the creativity that people who are just generating so much stuff, but it's going nowhere, that at some point they just start shutting it down because it's frustrating to just be generating, 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 and having nothing come to fruition because lacking on that, the, the right to follow through part, making it real. Yeah. That, one of the things that, that I've taken as an approach is – I mostly don't write stuff down anymore when I come up with an idea. There was a time when I would write down all the creative thoughts that I had and, and, and it burned a hole in my soul because I was like, well, I can't make all this stuff. When am I going to create all this stuff? And not writing it down allows me to let go of it more. And so if, it's, if I'm just sort of in that generating idea mode, I'm like, all right, great, I'm generating ideas. But if I'm 
in the mode where I'm focused on one idea and I'm really brainstorming around one single thing, that's different. That I'm going to write down because that's a, that means I'm actually, that's part of the productivity side of that creation piece. But if I'm just like, oh, I could do this or I could do that or I could do this or I could do that, that stuff, I'm not writing that stuff down because that it's going to kill me if I write it all down as opposed to. Yeah. It's like whistling. Yeah. Yeah. But if it, if it's good, it comes back. Like I, another day when I'm brainstorming, that stuff circles back on me and I'm like, oh yeah, that thing, that's the thing I should do. I haven't written things down a lot, but I recently found a little while ago, found a notebook of some, like a journal from almost 40 years ago. And I was, I didn't look at it for a long time. because I thought how that may be really emotionally draining to read this. And I finally read it one day and I said, oh, I basically haven't changed. I'm just less pretentious now. <laughs> I said, There's a few things, the phrases I use, I just rolled my eyes at. But yet people don't, at some level, you don't change. And yet we're always trying to get people, help people change when you really don't. So, yeah, because I, I think the, the core part of you doesn't change. But the core part of you, whether or not it's being expressed and being ex coming to fruition in the world, that can change. And then that's what coaching is so much about. Yeah. So you sort of skipped over the surface of I have meditated and been mindful for 388 days in a row. And I'm not going to let that just drift away. How? What has your strategy been? That's a lot of days in a row. It's over a year. To me, that's something that's almost as amazing as I'm studying Swedish now. And I've studied that. And my streak there is like 120 days. And as I was wondering, how am I doing these? These are not things that I would think come naturally to me. Like eating breakfast 360 days in a row, like that's not hard. I can, that I do. Although I probably haven't. Now the meditation, I think it's streaks. Streaks really are powerful to me because it's, it's a game then. And I'm using Duolingo for learning language. And that has all these things that I would think I would just, I wouldn't take seriously as like little cartoon owl that pops up and tells me I'm doing a good job. And that makes me smile, really approaches my inner child. I'm, there's a little, you pick a topic. That's all I have to do. I have to pick a topic and then I just do what it says to do. The percentage of the lesson done just gets bigger and bigger. And then when it's done, it's, it makes a nice noise and the, color, the circle turns from green to red, say. And that really amuses me. That just keeps me going, just that reward system. Even though I know what they're doing, I know that it's silly. It, that doesn't stop it from working. And is that type of a reward system built into the mindfulness practice as well? Or is there something else going on there? there it's, mostly it's a streak, which makes me nervous because I once had a 72-day streak and I, and I missed a day and I thought I didn't meditate like for months after that because like, what's the point? Which I know is not logical at all, but that's how I felt. That was going to be my next question. <laughs> Keep going. This year, I, I did make, I wanted to make it to a year. And now this year, I'm just going to go for a number of hours, I think, because that way I can miss a day and still make it up won't be devastating. So I'm thinking aiming for 168 hours. That's a week of total time. So that's like 27 minutes a day. I can do that. And what I found really works lately is I meditate. This People won't, won't believe this, but I meditate in bed before I get up. I'll lay there because now when I wake up, I'm awake for the most part. That's the more of the time of the day I'm not going to fall back asleep because if I could, I would. And is that always been the case or is that the result of the mindfulness meditation or is that something else? probably partly aging, just not sleeping as heavily, but I will set my timer, put on my new agey music on in the background. It's some sleep channel, but I like that as background. 
and to spend a half hour just counting, having my mind drift, bringing it back over and over and over and over. But now I know I start out before I even get up, I've already done that. I, I had a, took one of those like a rope tassel thing that they use for curtain tiebacks, I think, and had made that just so I could hang it on the doorknob outside the door. So when I was going to bed at night, if I saw it, I'd realize I hadn't meditated. And that was a pretty good system, but since I've been just meditating before I even get up, I just leave it. it doesn't go anywhere. Cool. Yeah, and I'm, I'm proud of it too, because I like, feel like so many things I haven't stuck with or haven't accomplished or had good intentions. So I'm, I'm pretty proud of having stuck with this. Yeah, it's amazing that you should be proud of that. That's really incredible. Yeah, it, it really has helped so much. I just find I'm so much less reactive than I probably was before. I just have that pause so often where I don't, I just feel like I'm making a choice. I'm living in control. Someone honks at me in the car. I just, I, I catch myself like, yeah, it's not worth it. And that's like the ultimate test, I guess. <laughs> that's great. Congratulations too, by the way, on both of those. Thanks. On meditating for 388 days and also the 120 days studying Swedish. That's, that's phenomenal. The Swedish thing I get partly is that it's quirky and not I'm not going to, I could learn Spanish, say, and have so much more use for it. And something's quirky, quirky is one of my favorite things. If I'm reading a description of a movie and there's quirky, I'm there. I just love it. I do have Swedish relatives. We're going to Sweden next summer. So in a, I'm, I, my plan is to be able to speak it even, no matter how poorly and no matter how horrible my American accent is. I'm doing it. I don't have to. Everyone in Sweden, or virtually everyone speaks beautiful English. But I want to do it as, as, well, as a challenge. And as a courtesy. That's cool. That's awesome. So the, the quirky part sends me back to that childish versus childlike thing that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. How do you differentiate the two? I think what I want to be is childlike, just to be, you talk about beginner's mind. You talk about that in yoga, meditation, just coming in without preconceived notions, seeing things for what they are which is what kids do. They, don't, they haven't formed that many notions yet. Childish is something that I think other people, other people see childish. They are, that's their projection onto what I'm doing. And childlike is mine, which I, I, I generally feel good about myself. And so to me, I, I usually see things I'm doing as childlike. Other people, unfortunately, don't always share that. An example, I, I think everyone who's had ADD has this, had this revelation when they found out that, that it's hard for somebody with ADHD to do something if it's not interesting. It's hard to start on something boring. And it makes a lot of sense. It makes so much of your life make sense. Then you go and you tell somebody who's neurotypical this, and, the, and they don't have the sympathy for it. They say, oh, it must be nice to not do boring things. I do boring things. Why can't you do boring things? And, and, and that's, that's an example of the, the, the tribe getting it, other people not getting it. And it's, it's not I mean I can't do it, but it's hard. I, I'm trying, my, my not doing something, I might be trying to get even close to beginning to do it. So the effort doesn't, you know, I guess it's making the effort not having results is frustrating. I remember talking to a doctor who is a friend of ours. I was saying to her like, you know when you have to do something and you just, you just can't seem to start, like it's just something that's not interesting to you and it's not compelling, and, and, but you have to do it. And you just, you just can't start and you might put it off for a day or two before you finally do it or maybe even longer. And she looked at me, straight face, deadpan. And she was like, no, 
Like she had no frame of reference for that whatsoever. She was like, I just do it. Like if I have something I have to do, I just do it. I don't even think about whether I want to or how engaging it is or anything like that. I just do it. I know. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, and that was my, one of my early insights into ADHD as an adult. I was like, oh, so like not everybody. Oh, okay. Like it was, I was floored at probably as much as she was. I'm sure she was looking at me like, what is wrong with this guy? And I was looking at her like, what is wrong with her? Like, how does, I wish I had that power. How do you do that? And since the things you're mentioning are circling me back to other stuff, earlier today, we were sort of part of like a, like an ADHD, I call it the ADHD crew. I don't know what you call it, but we have like a, there's a handful of us that kind of get together at stupid o'clock in the morning because we have Australians in the group. So we have to connect at like 7 a.m. That's um, stupid o'clock at night for them, to be fair. Yeah, it's fair. Yeah, yeah. I'm not arguing that. <laughs> um, but one of the things you mentioned today when we were talking was about the idea of pre-trying. Yeah, that I think that's kind of what you're saying. It's the getting, building up to, the, the it's almost like emotional foreplay with my brain to just get it in the mood to do something. Just getting myself ready to, be tr to begin to start to try. I love that. <laughs> I know I cannot go from a cold start. That just is not... I don't even, mm -hmm. I can't even imagine what that would, would look like. So, you know, so much of it, some of, so much of it's procrastination if I get right down to it probably, but no, but it's for a reason. We do things for a reason. I remember the first time I heard someone, I think it was Ari Tuckman talking about this and it made so much sense that yeah, we, we, maybe what we're doing doesn't work well. We're, our brain does everything for a reason. It's trying, it's trying to do, protect itself, trying to protect your, your self image, your self identity, your confidence. And these things aren't working, but but I I I, I think so much is uh, one thing I really I come up bring up a lot with my clients is that you know we all it's so easy to measure time it's easy to measure money so we put a lot of reliance on those things. Energy and focus are I think just as important, but virtually impossible to measure. So they get short shrift, and I it's, I think it's just so important. That's, well, I guess it's self care, but not just sleeping and eating and exercising, but just getting the stimulation, things like, things that are, play, things that are playing. You could be playing board games, computer games, whatever, reading, anything that just gets the brain activated, because it's hard to get our brains activated, and it, just pull out whatever tricks it needs. And I, once I, I, we had a presentation in, my, in the class with Eric, the, the group, and I had, and I, of course, I put mine off. I was supposed to give mine that day, and I woke up in the morning, I had not done it yet, I had two hours, and I decided to spend, of those two hours, half an hour, I'd done some research, but I hadn't put it together. I spent a half hour riding the exercise bike, and then a half hour meditating, and then in that one hour, I just knocked it out. I no way would have done that, of three hours of just staring at it, banging my head against the desk. So I was, that's a few, I just one of those things I understand, but I actually, I actually took my own advice, which I almost never do. And it worked. I probably haven't done it since, but I know it's there if I need it. And you just got reminded of it, so that's good. Right, I'll forget. I, I, I'm not good at capturing things. I have some friends that I, they're friends, but I'll still say coachy things to them because once you're coach, you can't turn it off. And they'll say something, because I'll, I'll say something that means lots, and they'll write it down, and they'll read back what I said. And I think, wow, that's pretty good. Like, I don't remember that. <laughs> I just don't know what I've lost. But then again, I make notes. I make a list, and I'm doing a mind dump of uh, things I want to, I would like to do. 
And I looked at, I found one list from like five or six years ago. It's exactly the same as one I made like a month ago, which either means I'm consistent or it's hopeless that these things will ever get done. So I'm looking, I would made another list of things that I think I like doing, but I don't. And there's things that if I made a pie chart of somebody, somebody asked me, what's stopping you? This pie chart would have little slivers that say time, money, space, equipment. And most of it would be, I don't know, because I don't. I, I have a woodworking shop. I've had a lot of enjoyment. It's just gathering dust. I have a ukulele, which I am playing currently, but it's gathered dust in the past. And if you ask me if I like these things, yes, I do like them. And something gets in the way and it's puzzling. So when you say they're things that you like, but you don't, you mean they're things that you like, but you don't do them. Not, not things you think you like, but you don't actually like them. That's right. That's what I meant. No, I, I, I was trying to come up with a matrix of that because I just love matrix, matrices. Right, and you get to things, things I would think I would like and I do like. Well, that's, pretty, that's not interesting. Things I think I wouldn't like and I do like. Again, no, no, no surprises there. But there are things that I, I mentioned, things I thought I wouldn't like, but then I do like. It's interesting because that means that when I thought I wouldn't like it, that's probably bringing in all kinds of voices, all kinds of values, all kinds of judgments. And it turns out the reality is different. And conversely, something I think I would like often later on, I like the idea of it. That's the thing. I tend to like the ideas of things because I don't even know what the thing itself is. And Later on, when I get to the thing, like, oh, I like the idea better. Can you give us an example of that? I've been on boards of several boards, one, once for ADD, ADA. And I just loved the idea of being on the board. I could be helping people. There's some prestige. I can put on my website, all these things. But then when it came down to it, the actual work is like things I'm not good at. It's things that, are, that require being consistent and methodical and working alone a lot. I find I overcommit when I'm in a group because of my my brain, the social part of it, when it's, I'm with other people, I get really excited about things. And in the moment, I totally, sure, I'm going to follow through with the commitment. But then later on, working on these things often involves a sitting alone in front of a computer, and my brain is at maybe 10% of what it was in the moment. So there's an example. I think I've read something once that prestige is something always to be careful of, because if something has a lot of prestige, that's, that's not, it's not going to pay you in other ways. Yeah, yeah. I, I know one thing that gets me is um, I'll use the ukulele as an example. I love the idea of like being able to play the ukulele, but uh, that requires practice. And I have learned that I am bad at practicing, which I think is a pretty typical ADHD trait, but I'm bad at practicing. So if I want to play the ukulele, I'm going to have to practice that. And that requires time and that requires remembering to do it. And that requires, um, putting something else to the side. I think the word practice, um, you have to trick yourself into doing it a certain amount every day, which will look like practice. But yeah, the word practice casts a heavy shadow over things. I know I, I things like, well, this meditation, like how did I get up to 130 hours, whatever, in the last year, little by little. Normally I can't do that, right? Like the thing like I have, I have half an hour a day, 10 minutes a day to spend on this ukulele. And I'm, I've been doing it lately. I, something I think that explains a lot of it, at least to, to my satisfaction, is Timothy Pitchell, psychologist somewhere in Canada. And he talks about the concept of future self. And it was very interesting. The research showed that most people, when you think about yourself in the present, there's certain brain activity that's kind of a characteristic of that. And if you think about another person, somebody else, 
that has it also will brain will light up in a different way. So you can see if you're thinking about yourself or thinking about someone else. But some people, when they think about their future self, it's similar to when they're thinking about themselves. They, it's them. It's them in the future, and they get it. They see the connection. And other people, when they think about themselves in the future, the part of the brain that lights up is the part of a, of a stranger, of another person. Because this thing in the future, like, it's not, it's not you. If I knew I could, if I knew that this future me would be able to play the ukulele well, and I'd be playing duets with Jessica someday or something, that would be easy. Like, how would I, you know, people talk about not being able to not do something. That may have been too many negatives. You know what I mean? But I don't see that. To me, it's like, I'm just going to do this thing now. And all I see is the, the now, which is sometimes frustrating. And the future part, my, and no, intellectually, I know what can happen, but I don't feel it. In my heart, I, it's not me. It's someone else. It's just this theoretical thing. And when you have a lifetime of like starting and stopping at some point, it's pretty easy to presume. I, I've gotten to put my pre-stop, think pre-quitting is another thing. Like, right, I start getting excited about something and within moments, I will like, no, it's like, I'll turn it off because no, it's just going to end up down the road. You're going to spend this money. You're not going to have it. You'll things. You'll feel shame because you did all these things and whatever this equipment will pile up in the closet next to the other, next to all the painting equipment and you know, what, what have you. And, and that, that's frustrating because I, I, I think you get to a point, where, at least for myself, it's just so, it's a habit, it's an instinct that I shut these things down, things that I probably, and I'll just find this, I'll just a brief moment of joy. And then I can see it now the shadow passed over it and it gets drawn back into a cave or something. Well, that happened with this interview. We, we talked about this interview a couple of times before we actually did it. And the first few times we talked about it, I watched that shadow pass. You started like, yeah, oh, well, I'm not sure. Well, everyone knows you can't wait till you're ready because you'll never be ready. But that's for other people. <laughs> I, I, one thing I want more than anything, it's, one thing I lack is clarity. And I think that's, well, it's the ADHD, the you know, high IQs. There's so many possibilities. You can generate so many things. And it's always generating. It's never, it's the divergent thinking. It's not, the, it's not converging. It's just, it's just it's a mushroom cloud of stuff. But not, but you can't talk, with most people you cannot talk about five or six things all at once, which I want to do. I like writing for, because writing forces you to pretend to be linear. And I can, I can fake it. And it's interesting because when we've talked about your clients, you do have clarity. So do you just, have more a lack of clarity for yourself but when you're working with clients you can kind of focus in because it's not you and some meta clarity probably where i don't have clarity about my clarity i don't know what it's so often you what's you have an idea what what should it look like and i don't know I, what do, does everyone just have this people you know, judging people's outsides compared to your insides other people seem so clear but i i realize that they may have more confusion inside or maybe they don't no they probably do you're just you're only seeing their outside like you said so they seem more decisive and more clear because they're acting on whatever they decided but we don't know how long it took them to come to that conclusion yeah yeah i i, I right just it, because it's real it's you can see it I, for me i think this is something i found a lot i talk about my uh about with people in adhd in general whenever i generalize i'm talking about myself 95 percent of the time probably I know that stuff. My, my, my experience was I was going through school, getting a lot of trouble early on. I remember my sisters love the story still where once they were walking down to lunchroom and I was sitting in the principal's office 
again. And they kept seeing me there and they, they would just ignore me because they were, it was embarrassing. They were both younger than me. And I said I was doing an internship and no one, no one would believe that. But I got in trouble because I was bored. You know, that's classic. I said, I'd create, I'd create interest, which teachers don't like you creating interesting things. But then later on in high school, it's, I, it's, high school was just a better fit for me because you, we had, I was fortunate in my high school, we had eight 45 minute periods, which suited my ADHD brain. And we had, I had time for things like jewelry making and class like that, that maybe I wouldn't if there was only six classes. And I started doing well. And then that got to be a game like, oh, can I get like all A's? Because earlier on, I, was, I flunked classes in middle school. But then it gets to a point where like, oh, this is people, before people, my parents are both in education. So when I was a kid, that was extra bad yeah, that I was, they were giving me a call down to the principal's office to talk about me when they were in education, which looking back, I can just imagine how horrifying it must have been. And I, I you know, I mean, it was causing trouble. I wasn't doing it. I didn't have ill intent. I just was bored. And I was, I said the maturity of a level of, of a kindergartner or whatever. But later on, it started doing well. People, oh, just people like this. And then you start, it easily leads to people pleasing, like suddenly, oh, if I do what they want me to, then they'll like me and I'll be accepted. And then I started drifting, I think, away from, because you know, be, when you follow your own instincts, it gets you in trouble over and over. Like, just follow your heart like I do, and then I'm in the principal's office. Uh, following my heart isn't, I'm not getting the good feedback I like, you know, for that. And just like, oh, if I follow my instincts, they get me in trouble. And at some point you learn like, oh, maybe I shouldn't trust my instincts. And you need your instincts when you're making decisions. So I think, I think that's, I guess clarity is partly is just going through making decisions. You're just going through deciding what's, what's important, what's not important, what matters, what doesn't. One thing that matters is that uh, I need to be respectful of your time as well as mine. So just being mindful of time, do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with the audience? One thing I see more than anything is people being unkind to themselves, my clients. And it breaks my heart. And I see them trying, doing their best, and just not giving themselves credit. And I just, yeah, I guess anyone out there, you're, you're, you're okay in my book. Just keep trying. Keep giving yourself credit. You be good to yourself. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com, and visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.